Our epistle lesson is found in Revelation chapter 7. We're reading verses 1 through 17. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess that it is in you that we live and that we move and that we have our being. We are dependent upon you for all of life, but we are especially dependent upon you for any knowledge. When it comes to knowing you, we are dark and blinded in our minds, but you are gracious, and you have revealed yourself in your Son, and by your Spirit, you illumine our minds and lead us into light and truth. So this morning, God, we ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. Amen. Several weeks ago, Melissa and I decided to remodel a bathroom in our home. Day one began with demolition, some planning. Old tile was removed. Clouds of thick dust descended upon every part of the house. That was unexpected. Then I looked at the shower, 
And John Lawler concurred with the judgment that the shower also need to be demolished. Rock board and tile came down. Inside of a couple of hours, the bathroom was down to studs and bare concrete floor. And it was about at that moment that I began to ask myself the question, what have I gotten myself into? But there was no turning back. There was nothing that could be done. The demolition was finished. You may feel somewhat the same way about this sermon series. We're now exiting chapters four and five where things have been fairly kosher up to this point, easy to understand. We've had letters to the seven churches and then we had a vision of heaven in which gives us a new perspective upon the earth. But here in chapter seven, we begin the steep uphill climb, the ascent to the peak of the book of Revelation where there is a great deal more difficulty, but there's no turning back now. We're committed. So I'm going to remind you of the simple rules that we've set forward for reading this book together. We'll do so each week in the coming weeks. First, remember that God speaks to the seven historical churches, but in speaking to those seven historical churches then and there, he speaks to the church here and now. This message was never intended to be written to just a historical group of Christians in the first century. It was also never intended to be written to some future group of Christians right before the return of Jesus. It was always intended to be written to the seven churches that are symbolic of the universal and the global church spread throughout the world. This letter, even when it feels difficult, is for you. It is written to you. Second, the meaning of this letter doesn't have to be overly complicated. What if all the bulls and the beast, the plagues and the problems, what if all the seals and the trumpets have a fairly simple way of understanding them? What if the layers of interpretation that we have created in the culture of the church, what if those are actually what caused the problem? And what if John, as the pastor, has a simple message in all the symbols that was to speak to the church about what life looks like between the resurrection and the return of Jesus and what it meant when he saw in heaven God sitting upon his throne? That's our frame of reference, that this doesn't have to be overly complicated. And there is a word for us today. We're going to add a third rule today that is extremely important. It too is pretty simple and helps cut through a lot of the chaos. We're entering into the portion of the book where we're going to find many different symbols, especially the symbol of seven. We're going to find seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and strange figures. And here's the important rule, that the literal interpretation of a symbol requires that the symbol be interpreted symbolically. Some people will say, I believe in a literal reading of the book of Revelation. It's like, well, so do I. A literal reading of the book of Revelation requires that you interpret a symbol symbolically. Because John has his very apocalyptic math, combinations of the number three and four and seven and 12 and 1,000. And he is not attempting to say literal things about those numbers, but he's pointing to realities of wholeness and fullness and of divine trinity and completeness throughout the world. 
We have to understand symbols symbolically or we'll absolutely miss the point. And John doesn't leave you simply on your own to do so. There are elaborate references to the Old Testament throughout the book of Revelation. And we find interpretations and understanding of those symbols when we can go there. And we also find that he provides us little context clues along the way as to how to interpret all this. It will all significantly reduce the chaos when we interpret symbols symbolically. And so today, we arrive at chapter 7, but it's important to recognize that last week we closed at chapter 5, and here we are skipping a chapter, and so we need to review what takes place in chapter 6. Perhaps you'll remember that in chapter 5 and verse 2, there's a question that is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? No candidate in heaven or on earth was found who was worthy to approach God's throne, take that scroll, and begin to open seals. But then one steps forward. He goes to write God's right hand. He takes the scroll. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah who was yet a lamb, and he was worthy. In chapter 6, that lion and lamb begins to open the scrolls, uh, begins to open the seals. Now, it's common for people to interpret these seven seals, along with the seven trumpets of chapters 8 and 9, along with the seven bowls of chapter 16, and it's common for people to see all of these seals and all of these trumpets and all of these bowls as a series of chronological events that unfold leading up to the return of Jesus. But what's critical for us is to recognize that there are other ways of understanding this. And one of the things that good reading of the book of Revelation requires is that we dig a little bit deeper about the relationship between these seven seals and seven trumpets and between these seven bowls. Because many people have spent hours and books have been written attempting to locate where exactly we fall in that timeline and how the events that surround us put us on the map as to how close we are to Jesus' return. My simple response is always to quote Jesus that we're not going to know. And so stop trying to figure it out. You're not going to penetrate that mystery and then when we look at these sevens, these series of sevens, we also see that they seem to parallel one another. They have a certain pattern to them in which they each begin with four catastrophes and then two intensified judgments and then one final scene of final judgment and new creation. So unless the final judgment happens three different times in world history, we have here parallel events that are being offered to us from different angles, and that each of these series of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls are telling the story of what life is like between the resurrection and the return of Jesus, where we're leading towards heaven and earth being reconciled, where God is once again dwelling with his people. And so they're describing for us what life is like in a broken and compromised world. We learn exactly what it is that we can expect from life in this world. And so chapter 6 begins with four seals. Those four seals are important to understand. They are horsemen that are sent out. They are satanic messengers. 
who operate at the permission of God, but they have their own agenda. The first is a white horse with a warrior on its back. White is the color of Jesus' horse in Revelation 19, but this warrior simply mimics Jesus and imitates him as an angel of light. He has nefarious designs. He comes to deceive and to wage spiritual war throughout the nations against the kingdom of God. It's the second horse, bright red in color, and we're told that this warrior comes to steal peace from the earth, creating strife and war amongst the nations. The third is a black horse, and in the rider's hand there are scales. Scales were used in the ancient world, especially in the Roman Empire, during times of famine in order to ration out food. You were given a certain measure. And then we also see the measures that are used here are grossly inflated prices. And so this is pointing to economic difficulty and to scarcity inside the creation. The final horseman rides a pale horse, and the rider's name was Death. He brings death in all shapes and forms. Pestilence and plagues, wild beast stands in for death and all the difficulty and decay that happens in our world. These horsemen represent natural, political, personal, and economic disasters that have unfolded since the resurrection of Jesus and will unfold until his return. They happen on small scales and on large scales. They're not new. And despite our penchant to think that our own time is the worst in the history of the world, it simply is not true. Disasters have befallen the world for many, many years. It's not new. It has been unfolding. And despite all of our technology and despite all of our knowledge, we can do very little to curb any of this, they are with us. It's the context in which we live. It's the context of the Christian life that we are asked to lead before God. And so you may think to yourself, Chuck, this is a fairly bleak picture. It's fairly depressing. Where is God in all of that? What does God have to say about all of that chaos that gets unleashed as these four seals were opened? And this is where chapter 7 is so critically important to understand in the flow of this book. Please note that in verse 1, chapter 7, we find that this vision takes place later. John has another vision in which he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And as he sees these four angels, they are a different set of angels, and they are holding back the four winds of the earth in verse 1. Those four winds are references to the four horsemen who were sent out. And so those four winds are held back and prevented from beginning their nefarious missions before God does something on behalf of the church. So please follow with me in verses 2 and 3. This is where we find what God is doing in the midst of all of this chaos. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. That this is what God does 
prior to the launching of all the chaos that unfolds, that God seals the church, that he sets the church apart, that he marks the church. And he does so in order to protect the church, spiritually protecting and guarding the church in the midst of all its trial and all of its trouble. So it's critical for us to understand what this seal exactly means. There's been a seal impressed upon every Christian that's been impressed. We're given the figurative notion of it being impressed upon our forehead. And so what exactly does that seal accomplish in your life, and what are the implications of it? Four things that we'll briefly consider. First, the seal marks us as God's own. In the ancient world, seals were personal, and they were held by people with great authority. They were typically applied to documents. And this seal that is applied to the forehead figuratively is nothing less In Revelation 14.1, we learned the name that is imprinted upon the forehead of those who have been sealed, and they are the names of God, the Father, and the name of the Son. It marks us out and designates that we belong to God. We belong to no other. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to another God. We belong to the true and the living God. Why do we belong to him? We learn here that it's not because of our achievements. It's not because of our accomplishments. It's not due to our moral uprightness. It's not due to our service in the church. No, we learn that we are marked out and we are God's own because the lamb was slain on our behalf. And he has taken our judgment on his shoulders, that the judge was judged in our place. In chapter 5, verse 9, we saw that Jesus' blood, by his blood, he has ransomed us and purchased people for God. And then in chapter 7, that we've been granted a white robe, and that robe was made white, ironically, through the blood of the lamb that has been cleansed. And friends, this is what we've been marked out for. When you're sealed by God, You're sealed with this truth embedded deep inside of your conscience and inside of your heart. That this is fundamental to your sense of identity and your wholeness and your security in life. And as the chaos and the trials and the troubles of life unfold all around you, you will receive any number of countermeasures. Measures that are designed to loosen your hold on this truth. That you would retreat from it. But God has sealed them to you. Sometimes they come in the form of a family background that's difficult. Sometimes they come in the form of employers that are harsh and hard. Sometimes they come in the difficult context of family. Sometimes it comes in the form of our circumstances. But God seals to us that we belong to him. That we are his and he is ours. And so to drive this truth deep into the human heart, God has sealed it to you. It dignifies your life in the middle of the difficulties. It is your sense of security. It is your sense of wholeness. And so we're invited here to meditate richly upon what it means to be those purchased by the blood of the Lamb and that this become key to how we understand ourselves as those marked out by Him. 
Now, second, the seal also protects us from tampering. It's one of the functions of seals in the ancient Roman Empire. They secured things. They would be fastened to a scroll in order to keep it from tampering until it was time to be opened. Or a seal was placed on Jesus' tomb so that it wouldn't be tampered with. And God has not placed a seal upon a document. He's placed his seal upon you so that you not be tampered with. And what the seal does is it protects you in the middle of all the trial and the trouble of life. In the midst of these horsemen and all their nefarious designs, that you not be overwhelmed and overtaken by everything that will happen in this life. The trials are real. And God's seal doesn't protect you from the trials, but what it does for you, it confirms the fact that those trials will become the very things that strengthen your faith and allow you to endure that the trials become the very instruments by which you from weakness are made strong. What is meant to destroy only actually further confirms and strengthens. It's one of the beautiful parts of pastoring a multi-generational church. Some of the most significant conversations that I've ever had as a pastor are with people entering into the last years of their life. They're not even necessarily just on the verge of dying, but they know their mortality and they know their days will have an end, and they're very highly akin to that fact and aware of it. And friends, the things that I've learned from that in those conversations is hearing about all their successes in life and also their setbacks, their triumphs, but especially their trials. And then as they are able to share that it is in all those trials that God in all of their weakness and all of their dependence made them strong. And God allowed their faith to continue. God allowed them to move along, sometimes stumbling, but yet faithfully. And that's because a seal is placed upon the Christian life that allows us to persevere. And this is why we need older saints, and I say this especially to the younger ones, it's important to see examples of that seal in operation and learning from it. Because we need no help, especially in our culture with growing cynical. It's easy for the difficulties and the rigors of life to lead to a cynicism that begins to erode your faith and your trust in God and his goodness. American novelist David Garrald captures this spirit of cynicism well for us. He writes this, life is hard, then you die, then they throw dirt in your face, then you're eaten by worms. Be grateful it happens in this order. It's the cynic's response to the rigors of life and the outcome of it. And if that is all there is, it is bleak. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That is all there is. And that cynicism will erode faith and its activity in your life. There are plenty of disappointments and discouragements. There are plenty of setbacks and sufferings. And what we're guaranteed here in the book of Revelation is that you will not escape those. 
they will befall you, but they will not necessarily overtake you because a seal has been impressed upon you. You've been marked out as God's own, and he will protect you from tampering. And so the seal exists that your sufferings would actually work in the opposite direction. Even though they're designed by, with evil intent, that they come forward from the one who opposes God's kingdom and his rule, that they actually would become a servant to you to strengthen your faith. God protects you from tampering. Third, the seal also sets us apart for God's service. It's important to recognize those Old Testament connections, particularly Exodus 28. There we have the ordination of Aaron as the high priest of Israel. And he's consecrated and set apart for God's service. And there's a seal placed upon his forehead, a golden emblem. And inscribed in that golden emblem were the words, holy to the Lord. It set him apart. It marked him for the service of God. And friends, John goes to extraordinary lengths in chapter 5 of Revelation to make this clear to us, that God purchased us by his Son, redeeming us in the blood of the Son, granting us the great benefits of restored communion with him. But he has purchased us so that we become a kingdom of priests. That is that we have been consecrated. We have been ordained set apart for the service of God. And so we never have the opportunity as Christians simply to be consumers, those who simply come and receive benefits from God because we've been commissioned by God. We receive all those benefits. They belong to us. We are his. But now because we are his, we also exist for him. We belong to God and our life is not our own. That all of our gifts, all of our capabilities, all of our finances, all of our time is to be given to the service of him. Use what you have to serve him as that kingdom of priest. That's what he's sealed you for. And finally, the seal also guarantees the promise. In the first half of chapter 7, John hears the number that were sealed. It's important to recognize that he heard that number, 144,000, 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. But then in the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 9, we see that there's another vision. And John doesn't just hear, now he sees something. He sees this multitude of 144,000 that were just sealed. And what do we learn there? After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. It's been the habit of some to understand that 144,000 refers to ethnic Israel, but it simply is mistaken because the identity of that 144,000, those who are sealed, clearly is this great multitude of people gathered in from the north and the south and the east and the west. All the tribes and tongues gathered there before the throne of God. 
This is who God has sealed and he's set apart. And the seal that's placed upon that community authenticates that they belong to Jesus. They are his true people whose robes have been washed white in his blood. And that seal guarantees our participation in all of the inheritance that lies ahead. You see very quickly what that inheritance is in verses 15 through 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That this is the great vision that John sees in heaven of new creation. That the world brought into judgment has been purified of sin and evil and injustice. And dead bodies have been raised and God's people have been brought back into communion with him. And we dwell not in a far off place, but here in a renewed heavens and renewed earth. That we commune with God and we walk with him. That there are no more tears and all the sad things are forgotten. All the great trials and tribulations, they are wiped away. And the lamb, he's a shepherd. And he guides us to streams of living water where we drink and we are taken into eternal life. That the seal guarantees that promise for you. That as you look to Jesus, you will participate in these awesome realities that defy imagination, that defy theological description even. We can only approximate and begin to approach it because this is what God holds out for you in resurrection. And so we are promised two things in the book of Revelation. We're promised trial and trouble. Those are real. Those events are unfolding as Jesus prepares to consummate all things. But the second corollary promise is that God will protect you. He has sealed you. He has set you apart. He has commissioned you to his service. You will not be tampered with, and you have this great inheritance. Friends, he's not left us. You are not an orphan. You've been sealed. And so meditate upon that richly. Take those truths down into your heart, especially as you experience the rigors and the difficulties of life. And so let's ask him for his help. Let's pray. Father, we confess our weakness. We know that the harsh realities of life often discourage us. But assist us today and remind us again that you have sealed us, that you've made us your own, that you've set us apart for your service, that you keep us from being tampered with, and you have sealed to us a great inheritance. May we know these things, and may all of these things keep us from being overwhelmed and overtaken, and rather, may our trials and our difficulties strengthen our faith as we continue to follow after Jesus. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.